I'm Chris Green, and this is SEO in 2023 Additional Insights. Chris, what's your additional insight for SEO in 2023? So uh, my additional insight is 2023 is the year that you really need to invest in understanding what makes qualitatively good content. Okay, and from your experience, what does make quantitatively good content? I think it's all about understanding the journey that the user is going on and understanding not only what solves that problem, but then the next and the next. It's kind of anticipating the onward or understanding this journey, this issue so well that you know what the follow-up question is because seldom when anyone searches or looks for content or an answer to a question do they answer the question and then put down their phone or close that tab like apart from a very sort of specific set of examples most questions are a journey and i'd say what makes really great content is content that owns that journey as best it can ideally through to I say through to completion, I mean, arguably life is the journey, so your content can't see someone to the end of their existence. But for that particular moment, for that particular task that you as a website can can satisfy, I think it's that focus on how do you own that all of the way. Life is the journey. There's a deep thought for you. <laughs> yeah, maybe a bit beyond the scope. <laughs> so it's certainly not about volume of content then in 2023. No, no, no. And, and that may feel slightly at odds with some other kind of movements in scaling content, you know, AI, GPT-3, and how can we pump out as much as possible? And I, I think within the last year or so, we've seen, we've, I mean, great content at scale is the, the panacea, but mediocre to poor content at scale's effectiveness is only but going to diminish. And I think we, you know, even within the last sort of 12 months, we've kind of, we started to see the rise and almost subsequent fall of lazily, sort of machine generated content which in the whole kind of google content paradigm is just a repeat of what's gone past but i think really investing in what works well has never been more important because we're watching it we're seeing every core update the 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 people that drop off are often publishers who up until now have assumed that they had great content and they had great surface level content that ticked a load of boxes that had the volume but didn't resonate or did not add any further value. And that's that's where it gets a bit woolly, but also where it's really, really crucial. When you talk about lazily generated machine content, is, is all <laughs> machine generated content um, lazy in essence, i.e. if you're generating Ooh. content for important stages in your customer journey, can you use machine generated content to perhaps speed up the process a little bit or Mm-hmm. At this stage, even with ChatGPT, is machine-generated content not going to be quite as good as human-generated content? I think a subject expert who is good at writing or has a great editor will win, I'd say, 10 out of 10 times, certainly in in where we are currently. I, I, I'd be naive to think that'll continue. I think machine-generated content has its place, but it's all about the prompt and then what you do when it's been generated out the other side so i think it can work i think rely the lazy part is relying on it and so i've seen some workflows of you know scraping people also ask boxes to 
turning those questions into prompts, generating content to then publishing it. You know, I think a lot of that's been done as proof of concept, but it has actually worked. I mean, that is the kind of antithesis of what we're discussing. And broadly, I think that is what Google just wants to not succeed. And and as we as users should probably not want it to succeed. I think the only people that do want it to work are those that are currently sort of profiting off it, frankly. I think that's the that's the lazily generated part. I, I think you could have a subject expert that could write an incredible plan and machines at GPT-3 could craft it into something that then could be well edited and that could be an amazingly compelling piece of content. But that's still quite involved and it isn't the shortcut that I think people wanted it to be. Um, it's not content, just add water. Not that works anyway. You mentioned quantitative to begin with there. Um, what are a few quantitative methods that you would recommend looking at? I would say investing in tracking and really becoming intimate with what users do with the data or with your content. What do they do after that point? What do they do when they're on the page? How long do they spend on there? Which if you're using most, you know, if you're using Google Analytics as an analytics package, it's investing in additional methods of tracking. If you've moved to GA4, you may start to see some of the benefits of using GA4 because some of the out-of-the-box event tracking is is stronger. But I think other software, anything from the UX space, the heat maps that records is key. But then falling back a bit further than that is actually slightly less easily measurable, but actually asking users what they think of it, actually surveying user groups and you know, kind of understand, getting people to undertake the journey that they would take with you watching them, like watching them experience your content, not quite like eye tracking level and, you know, some of the, the, the really sophisticated stuff, although that could be useful. But I think there's a lot we as SEOs could learn from UX teams in terms of how easy is this content to consume? How satisfying is it? What do I then, what does it then enable me to do? And that's tricky because not everyone has the means or the time to necessarily do that. But I think if you've got a significant content budget or you're, you know, this is the year we finally turn ourselves into the knowledge source, then I would say carve a reasonable chunk of your budget out to make sure it is actually good. And that sounds, to to most marketers that haven't been involved in SEO, that might feel almost so painfully stupid it wouldn't even sound like something you'd need to say. But content strategies that are initiated from the SEO side of a business quite often don't have the quality of content as a key output. It's usually volume or keyword targeting or, you know, topic clusters or internal linking. There'll be metrics that aren't actually related directly to user satisfaction. And that's quite a large omission that needs to be closed, really. Are we at a stage where metrics like scroll depth and dwell time can have a measurable impact on SEO performance? Ooh, I, I hope so. In the sense that, well, we a lot of it, we're trusting that Google's ability to understand and reward the right behaviors is firstly how we imagine it and secondly accurate. I, I think there's a lot of issues with what software we use to record that and what it there means. So what I'm getting at is I don't think the data we see in analytics, is, in Google Analytics, is linked directly in any way. But you know, if people making it back to search too quickly might be a negative factor, if people not dwelling on a page might be a negative factor, and they're using Chrome, for example, you might assume that Google's ability to see or acknowledge that is somehow there. 
So yes, I hope so. I may sound like I'm flip-flopping a little bit on how confident I am, and that's because that's entirely true. <laughs> um, you know, the, the fact is that we do more often than not, the better content is starting to float to the top more often than it used to. You'll still find the odd exception. Are you actively using GA4 at the moment? Am I actively? No, I'm clinging to universal analytics like a bit of a child, if I'm being honest. I have I dual, I'm a strong advocate of dual tracking. I can see the benefits, the, the, I mean, in terms of how the data is processed, how the event tracking works. And even in some respects, I can see the direction they're going with the UI and how you know, they're weaning universal analytics users off certain metrics that are kind of unhelpful. But I am also a creature of habit that's quite busy, so I, I get universal analytics. I'm very, very aware of where it doesn't work very well, and that's that means it's quicker to work with. Um, but if you're not dual tracking and you're not starting to get used to GA4 and the various metrics and dimensions, you're in for a surprise in 2023, that's for sure. Something else you say is invest in completing user journeys rather than individual moments. And uh, I really like that. Um, I mean, Google certainly had a big thing about moments that matter, certainly in relation to paid ads a little bit more uh, a few years ago. But um, completing user journeys certainly would focus on multiple steps, potentially, that you're looking for users yes. to take. Um, if you are a business that perhaps has a long sales cycle or perhaps has those user journeys split up into parts um, at different times? How, how do you establish what those parts are and um, how they actually impact on the bigger picture? Yeah, that's a great question. So a lot of this is going to vary on your maturity of how well you already understand your customer and what data you already collect about them. So if you are a business that has a CRM that understands their customers, that already has insights over their life cycle. Even if you don't fully sort of understand it in depth, but if you know, you know, when they open an email, when they come back, when they fall into a retargeting audience, then then you can kind of you have a lot of the data to piece it together. So that's your your fast track. If you don't, then this is more. Firstly, you work on your assumption, and I I mean, you know this coming back into user journeys and personas and are they really accurate and no no one's ever that linear and people fall into different paths you you have to kind of work out what are the most likely touch points based on what you know at a given moment and that's better than not having any clue and you kind of create that view you create the content that best fits that and then you start working out what are the exceptions speak to customers speak to customers that are happy speak to customers that are unhappy speak to the people that speak to customers. So quite often sales teams, custom support, but also look at the research around how do people Google your brand and your business and you will slowly build up a picture of where are these pain points? Where does the journey extend beyond it? I think I always come back to the example of, you know, someone when someone realizes they need a new TV, they might be searching for a dead pixel in the middle of a, a display. They're not searching for, I need a new TV or I want to buy a 42-inch TV at that point. It's it's kind of understanding where do those problems originate from. Um, but then once you've had a TV for a few years, you might want a soundbar or you might want to connect, you know, um, internet-enabled devices to it. And it's kind of, it's just mapping what, what are the journeys into the solution or product you offer and then what are the journeys when you leave it again. And this is lifecycle marketing or you could talk about the loyalty loop or the traditional marketing funnel there are already lots of models that kind of express the principle but actually 
the models are the models there over there. Your customers are in that direction. Like, what what do they do? And firstly, ask them, especially the ones that are unhappy. That gives you. A lot I love of that. I mean, that, that's about establishing the first um, few questions prior to actually getting to the stage where they're asking the questions that may result in a in a purchase. And obviously, there's not necessarily mm-hmm. a a direct content relationship between those questions, but it's establishing a common sequence that your target market's likely to go through. And that kind of um, brings me up just to uh, another related follow-up question is that um, you also say that um, you should answer more than the first question, answer the two to three following questions. How do you establish Mm -hmm. what the following questions are? First thing I usually do is find the content that already does it really well and see if they do it. So that's kind of the, the laziest part is, okay, well, are they already doing that the second one is in undertaking that journey so if it's if it's a journey that you you might be able to undertake yourself go on that journey and go right what would i do next so you need to kind of use your empathy or or role play or however you want to frame that to put yourself in that position but then it is also just asking those kind of customers and and the the subject experts in your business are the best ones to kind of understand what might happen it's just somebody whoever's questioning that subject expert needs to be as naive as they possibly can and just ask seemingly stupid questions about the journey and the journey and the product to remove any assumptions there'll be so many questions that you can answer that you wouldn't think to because they feel so fundamental or so insignificant or inconsequential but to a, an uneducated user they could be really critical, so I would I would run through that. But I mean, you know, tragic, sort of some of the well-established ways of mining this data. So people also ask boxes, traditional keyword research, snooping on competition. I would still look at those as core parts of it. But what? Who's your product ex, product expert, and what can they tell you about the journey as well? You've shared what SEO should be doing in 2023. So now let's talk about what SEO shouldn't be doing. So what's something that's seductive in terms of time, but ultimately counterproductive? What's something that SEO shouldn't be doing in 2023? So we've we've kind of we've we've kind of glided around this a little bit. I think if automation is your strategy, is your play or your winning move, then you're going to have some troubles this year. And by which I mean any method of if how are we going to solve our problems? We're going to automate things, not because automation is bad. But because it isn't automation is a is, is an enabler for achieving something, but it isn't the starting point. You know, even if your issue is that scaling this new content strategy is tough or creating content that resonates at right times, automation is 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 an enabler or a method to help you achieve that. It isn't your strategy. So that's I'd say don't over rely on that. You're still the marketer and the expert. So it has to come from you. And in my experience, six times out of 10, if you think automation is going to save you time, it doesn't. If anything, it creates a whole new set of problems because you just weren't aware of what they were. It's a, it's a tactic, isn't it? Yes, 100%. But it's uh, to many the panacea and what it should be about. If you're not investing heavily in automating and speeding up these workflows, then you're you're failing somehow as a marketer. It can help, but very, very few people need it at, at what's advertised. It looks very cool, it feels very cool, and it is exciting because I'm a nerd and I do find automating stuff really cool sounding, but it's almost never the solution. Chris Green is a senior consultant at Torque, and you can find him over at torquepartnership.com. Chris, thanks so much for adding your additional insight to SEO in 2023. Thank you for having me. 
I've been your host, David Bain, and you've been listening to SEO in 2023 Additional Insights, a majestic series that complements the original SEO in 2023 podcast, video series, and book. Find out more over at seoin2023.com.